You have your own translation in there and a place you can ask questions if you have them. We'll be continuing our journey this morning through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, Ecclesiastes just finishing up the last verse of chapter 9 and jumping into the first several verses of chapter 10. And before we go to God's Word, as always, <clears throat> let's go to God together in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is our joy to come and to proclaim that Jesus Christ alone is our cornerstone. And Lord, it is with joy that we come before Your Word where we see Christ shown to be our cornerstone for our life, shown in His death to be the propitiation for our sins, and shown in His resurrection to be the key to our having life in You. Now Lord, we ask that as we come to Your Word yet again, You would let us see Christ. Let us taste and know that He is good. And would You build us up that we might be more like Him. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Ecclesiastes, uh, starting in chapter 9, verse 18, going through verses, uh, chapter 10, verse 11. This is God's Word. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. And so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man, man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. This is God's Word. So as I was going through and studying this passage, preparing for this, and I read, especially the harder it is, and if I have no idea what's going on, I tend to consult more experts. And one of the experts... I read past couple weeks said, I can't think of anything worse or more poorly organized than Solomon's word in chapter 10. And I was thinking, I could think of some worse things than that, I believe. But all these commentators and all these so-called experts have no idea, it seems, what's going on in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It's, which is too bad because this is a great part of Ecclesiastes as we've been working through this book together over the past couple of months. This part of Ecclesiastes where we've been most of chapter 9, we're continuing in chapter 10, is all about how God's people, those who've been changed by grace, how we can bask in the joy of His approval. That through the work of Jesus Christ, we've seen that God doesn't just accept us and put up with us. He actually approves of us. He enjoys us. Those incredible words, well done, 
rest over our lives because of what Jesus Christ has done. For those of us who've been united to Him by faith, God looks at us and says, I approve you. Well done. Knowing that reality is wisdom. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. And such wisdom gives us joy. It gives us a lightness. It gives us peace. But such grace can also be taken advantage of by us, can't it? I mean, after all, if God approves us, if, if He fully accepts us through Christ, then we can do whatever we want, right? There's no more law. All that holiness stuff, we don't have to worry about it anymore. See, we're wired to think like that, aren't we? But that's not the gospel. The grace that saves us is a grace that changes us. If we are saved by grace, but there is nothing different about our lives, our thought patterns, the attitudes of our heart, that's not wisdom. That's foolishness. That's folly. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. So, Usually we try to be very evangelistic, but this is really a, a, a passage that's very much keyed into God's people. This is to those who are in the body, those who come to church, those who know the language. So if you're a church person, if you know the Christian language, if you can hang out with the best of us and say the verbiage and fool everybody, that, but you're not really experiencing the joy of God's approval that we've been looking at the last several passages then you're the foolish person in this text. Sorry, I didn't write it. Take it up with him. It means you're not living in the reality of the gospel. Rather, you're living with a knowledge of the truth. You know the facts, but that truth has not changed you. This is a passage for those very comfortable with church. Those very comfortable with all the Christian stuff those very comfortable with the language and the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, but who really aren't living in the gospel, who really haven't been changed. That's where we're going to go today. So I kind of want to sum all that up into one sentence to help you remember this. Maybe over lunch today, what was the sermon about? You can remember this is what we're going to talk about today. The wisdom of grace can change your life if grace changes you first. See, it's not enough just to encounter wisdom. It's not enough just to encounter foolishness. Instead, we must live by the wisdom of grace. That is what Solomon is trying to get to us in this chapter. So let's jump into this and see. First thing is encountering wisdom. It's the, the wisdom of resting in God's approval. Such wisdom is powerful if we use it. Often, we who should know and who should use wisdom, those of us who've been exposed to grace, we don't live in grace, do we? Instead, we live as if having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ really makes no difference. See, to know about grace, but to not be experiencing that grace, that's foolishness. It's not wisdom. So over the course of this book, of what has he been doing? He has been looking at the world under the sun. From chapter 1, really through chapter 8, he was looking at this world and he called it under the sun. This is those who say, you know, I'm not really sure if there is a God or not, so I'm just going to default to saying there is no God and I'm going to make my own way in this world. 
And so he looks at all the different paths that are, that are available to those who say, ah, no, I'm going to try it my own way. And he shows how none of them really work. But now he's turned the corner and he's talking to us. He's talking to those of us who say, yeah, we don't do that stuff. We're not under the world. We're under God. And he's saying, yeah, but y'all really aren't living in wisdom either. He's telling us we don't live in joy when we don't actually experience grace. And so if we say we are those who are part of God's community, but we're not living in the joy of His approval, then He says, guess what? Y'all are fools. This is a, not a passage that perhaps is good for our self-esteem, maybe. See, but He's not calling us here as we go through this passage, we look for these kind of weird, different sayings put together. It's hard to find a rhyme or reason here. He's not calling us here to buck up on our wisdom and to, you know, study more, try harder, be more wise. He's talking about our hearts. He's talking about our hearts delving into something we already know. You know, we, we know all this stuff about Jesus. We know all this stuff about the Bible. We know what the gospel means, but we're not actually living in that wisdom. The text says, you know what that's like? That, that's kind of like a nice bowl of fragrant perfume in the pre-air conditioning, pre-running water, very hot, arid culture with lots of sand and animals around. Can you imagine the odors? And so having perfume was part of your daily ritual. You perfumed yourself to cover up the other stuff. And he's saying, you know, what happens is the perfume usually has something sweet in it and flies are attracted to it and they get in there and the flies drown and they start to, and they, their body rots. And so as you get flies in your perfume, instead of getting this nice, wonderful perfume aroma, you get a stench. He says, you know, knowing the grace of God, but not actually getting it in your heart, makes you stink. Instead of being this fragrance of the gospel, he goes, go away, shoo, right? It just ruins the whole thing. It outweighs the good. Now, again, he's not talking about our performance. I know how most of us think. We're thinking, oh, okay, so I've got to be a better... No, this is about your heart. This is about taking what you know and really living it out, having it change you. Look with me at verse 2. Here's what he says about it in verse 2. He says, look, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. See, I can't believe that in a presidential election year that some conservatives haven't grabbed this verse, right? I mean, it's like so perfect. I can't believe Joe doesn't have this as a bumper sticker on his car. Okay, but that's not what it's about. Okay, it's not about politics at all. This is about, he's saying, look, wisdom and folly are about the inclinations of our heart. The position of power and authority was on the right. And so those who did the right thing, their heart's in the right place. Those who would do something more to the left, again, like what? If it, if it helps you, the word in Latin for left is sinister. So it's kind of, there's this bad thing. People on their left who were left-handed were considered bad. They were considered kind of shady and sneaky, primarily because, again, pre-gunpowder, the primary weapon was a sword. And so if you were going to frisk somebody for security reasons, where would you check most people? Swords on this side, right, because you do this. Well, if you're one of them shady, sinister lefties, where's your sword? See, you fool people. That's kind of how it works. So people who go to the left, they're not to be trusted. Be careful with them. I am left-handed, by the way, and we'll just leave it at that. So anyway, what he's saying is, is, is our heart resting 
on God's approval through Christ? Or are we resting on Christ plus our efforts, plus our religious performance? Do we get the gospel or not is what he's asking. You know, last week at our camp meeting, uh, Tom Anderson, a previous pastor here, what, four pastors ago, I think. So he asked this wonderful question. He goes, do we, do we see church as a troop ship or as a luxury liner? That's really a gospel question, what he's asking. If we approach church thinking it's Christ plus our efforts, not only is that folly, not only is that no joy, but it changes how we look at church. Church becomes about our activities. It becomes about what we get on this luxury cruise. It becomes about our appearance at the dinner that night, at church parties and the the church practices, and oh, what's on the schedule next? Instead of about being the church, instead of about the joy of the gospel that has us on mission to go conquer something in our community. See, and what that does for us functionally, how does that actually work out? We turn church life into obligations. And we've all felt this way, right? Serving in the nursery again. Did I just do that? It can become an obligation. The choir can become an obligation. Sunday morning can become an obligation. Camp meeting, an obligation. VBS, a camp meeting. All these wonderful, joyful things that instead of us coming to express the gospel to those who need to hear it and see it, we come with an attitude of obligations because, ah, yeah, I guess I better do this. Because we don't get the gospel. We're not, we're not about being the church, those changed by Christ, and so we're a troop ship going somewhere to do something. We're here to get. It's a luxury cruise, and I be, it better be something I like, and I didn't like the food, and I don't like the music this time, and I didn't like that. And You see the different mentality? It's about getting the gospel or not getting the gospel. See, but the good news is, is that the wisdom of grace can change our life. And change the way we look at ourselves in the church if grace changes us first. Have we been changed by gospel wisdom? Or have we merely encountered such wisdom but not actually been changed? It's the question, the first part of this text. And the next thing he looks at is then, okay, so we were encountering wisdom. Now he looks at encountering foolishness. So wisdom is right in front of us. It's right there through the Scriptures, through other Christians, we're exposed to grace, we're exposed to wisdom, and yet we know we still encounter in our life a lot more foolishness than we do wisdom, right? We find ourselves, even in our own heart, living in unbelief. We believe in God, but that belief functionally makes no difference in our life. That's the person of verse 3. It's a shell of a person. This person lacks sense is what verse 3 says. Basically, if you allow me to try to translate it in the vernacular, this person is so daft, it's incredibly obvious they're a fool. As soon as they open their mouth, fool, they're just walking the street, man, that boy got no sense. You can just tell. But what's interesting here is that it's not just that it's that this person is lacking intelligence. The Hebrew word there really refers more to the heart or even the soul. What they're saying is this person has nothing inside of them. This person, we would say maybe, is hollow. They're just a shell of a person. 
You see, we can call ourselves Christians, but our lives, our thought patterns, everything about us could lack joy from basking in the approval of God and the gospel, and non-Christians see it. We don't fool them at all. It's obvious, and it's foolishness for us to claim something verbally, but not to own it in our lives. See, what it does is it shows that we haven't been changed by grace. Part of being the body of Christ is supposed to be when we see each other like that, that we, we love each other well by saying, man, brother, you don't seem to be joyful. What's, what's going on? Wouldn't that be a great question to ask each other? But that kind of honesty rarely happens. Why? Because we ourselves aren't quite secure in the gospel. We're not quite joyful. We sure aren't going to ask somebody else why they're not joyful because they might be like, why aren't you joyful? See, in other words, in the church, we're kind of foolish and we're surrounded by foolishness. But it's also outside the church. Verses 4 through 7 are all about the foolishness we encounter out there. Look with me at verse 4. It says this, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now there's a, there's a play on words here in Hebrew that we miss in the English translation. That word there for calmness there at the beginning of the fourth line of the slide, it's actually used as the opposite idea of the one who lacks sense in verse 3. So the hollow person of verse 3 is the exact opposite of the one who has calmness. They have no wisdom inside of them. This person does have something inside of them. They've had an encounter with grace, and so they can handle the petty foolishness and bullies of life is what verse 4 is telling us. But the person who hasn't had an encounter with grace... When they encounter foolishness, when that boss is up in their face, when that bully won't leave them alone, when that bureaucrat continues to just be intransigent, the kind of person who's not hollow, the kind of person who has substance, calmness inside of them, they can handle it. In fact, notice, not only can they handle it, but they can actually turn it around. It says they can lay great offenses to rest. Because of the grace inside of them, they can actually calm down the foolishness around them. That's kind of a weird thing to say. I want to give you a picture of that. I want you to think of, those of you who are familiar with this, Jesus, after his resurrection, all the disciples are gathered around the upper room, and Jesus appears in the middle of them. For those of you who aren't familiar with with the story, they're in a locked upper room. Jesus has been arrested and executed, and they're freaking out, thinking the government's about to come get us and our guns, right? So they're hiding, basically. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears before them in in the room, and they freak out because the doors are locked. How did he get in here? And so what we do as good 21st century Western thinkers, we immediately think, right, Jesus, post-resurrection, he's like a ghost, you know, he's got the sheet over his head, and Scooby-Doo's chasing him through the hall, and so he kind of just appears, as a ghost in the middle of that room. He's all wispy and stuff. And he's like, peace be with you. Right? No, that's not, that's not the picture of Scripture at all. Scripture wants us to look at that totally differently, that Jesus Christ is a glorified, sinless body. 
His body is no longer subject to the fall. His matter has been completely purified from all the effects of sin. And so when His fully glorified matter that has no sin in it confronts fallen matter of the wall, the wall is misty and ethereal and He just passes right through it. Okay, that's a great piece of trivia. Thanks, Pastor Sean. Why are you telling me that? Because it shows us that the resurrected Jesus in a glorified body is substantial in an insubstantial world. That's what the philosopher pastor of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see about wisdom and God's grace. Instead of being the hollow, insubstantial, foolish people who haven't been changed by grace, who can't handle encounters with the foolishness of this world, those who have been changed by grace, those who are anchored in the joy that comes from God's approval through Jesus Christ, are substantial. That's what it means in verse 4 to have calmness in us. We have substance instead of being hollow. We can speak peace into the foolishness all around us. Okay, what does that functionally look like? Well, anchored in God's approval, it comes down to this. We don't have to win. You know what I mean. Think about the last time you had a confrontation with somebody. The jerk boss, the mean teacher, the co-worker who just doesn't quite get it. The primary reason, if that turns into a confrontation that's kind of aggressive, maybe an argument, is because we don't want to be talked down to. We don't want to be disrespected. We want them to treat us better. And so we let them know. We lash out. We exacerbate situations instead of bringing peace. But when we've been united to Christ by faith, when when we can say, I am not my own. I have been bought with the price of Jesus' blood. When we can say that I died with Christ and so I now live in Christ. The life I live, I live for Him. He owns me. I am His. So guess what? You can insult me all you want because I died and I I live for Christ. That's Christian talk. What does that mean? It means I am substantial because of what Christ thinks of me, so I don't really care what you think of me. You can insult me, and I can take it. I don't have to fight back. I can bring calmness and peace to the situation because I am resting in the approval of Christ. Don't you want to be that kind of person? The foolishness of the world can't give that to you. The foolishness that says base your identity on what you accomplish. There's always someone who accomplishes more. You'll be insecure. You'll lash out. You won't bring peace. What you wear then, there's always someone who can dress better than you. You'll be insecure. What you drive, there's always a nicer car. How much money you have in the bank, someone's always going to have more money. You will be a hollow person because those things can't sustain you. But if you are changed by grace, if you recognize that instead of being guilty for failing God, that Jesus died to overcome your failures before God, that if that gospel has changed you, it gives you joy, it gives you substance as you encounter the foolishness of the world. Is that gospel in you? Do you bring peace when you encounter foolishness? Because the gospel has put substance in your heart. That's the question. Because the wisdom of grace can change your life if grace changes you first. 
and we can move from then encountering wisdom and encountering foolishness to actually living in this wisdom. You know, the key word from the preceding verses, verses 4 through 7, was calmness, having something substantial in our heart. The key word for the rest of this passage, verses 8 through 11, is actually found in verse 10. It's the word success. Look with me at verse 10. It says this. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Isn't that interesting? There's that whole phrase there, actually, wisdom helps one to succeed. We could literally originally translate this as wisdom is an advantage for prosperity. Or wisdom is a profit for success. In other words, experiencing the reality of grace makes us better. And don't spiritualize this like we tend to do. You cannot get around the earthy, even economic language here. The original readers would have read this as success, as money, or as stuff, as being happy because things are secure in your life. In other words, what's promised here is real grace for real life needs. Which is the setup leading up to verse 10. Verses 8 through 9 tell us, look, dude's just out doing his job, he's digging a hole, he's supposed to, and he falls into it. Guy's tearing down a stone wall, a snake jumps out and bites him. Carpenter gets hurt by his wood. Life happens. The only way to succeed, to be substantial, is to be anchored in the joy of God's approval. That's living in wisdom. Otherwise, we're stuck in our own efforts, aren't we? We're stuck in our own abilities. We're stuck with our own trying and failing to make life work and it just exhausts us that's what verse 10 teaches us again i want to give you a picture of this the other day i was watching joseph uh, play a video game he's got in this really highly detailed video game and he's got all these controllers that i just can't use and his character is got is wearing armor has these big old swords and his job is to hunt down and kill monsters right cool okay he's not killing people i'm okay with it go ahead so he's attacking this monster, and he's cutting and slashing, and he appears to be doing really well, then all of a sudden I hear him kind of mumble to himself, and I look, and he's not doing well. And so he withdraws from the battle, and this is all on screen. This is how detailed this crazy video game is. He withdraws from the battle, he kind of runs off into the bushes, he kneels down, he takes out a whetstone, and he starts sharpening his sword. I'm like, they put all that detail in a video game? I mean, I grew up with, like, you know, Pong, you know, so I'm sort of, what is this? And then he gets his sword sharp, and he goes back into the battle, and he just tears this monster up. That's what this verse is telling us about. He says, look, man, we're hacking away, and life is just not working. The blade's not sharp. But folly says, well, just keep hacking anyway. But wisdom stops and sharpens the blade. It's like what your grandpa told you, right? Work smarter, not harder, boy. Or is that just me? So anyway, see, that's how wisdom brings success in life. In the context of Ecclesiastes, here's what's going on. We're trying to make life work. And it's not working, and so foolishness just keeps trying the same thing. Under the sun is one of the answers. And again, under the sun is not geography, it's what? It's one of those answers people try. It's basically, I'm going to ignore God and do my own thing. Does ignoring God work? Well, no, it doesn't really work. Okay, well, religion, manipulating God. Let's, let's try that. If I jump through all these hoops, God has to bless me because He owes me. I did all this stuff, right? That doesn't work. The gospel is the only true answer for making life work. That's the wisdom of sharpening 
your sword and saying, you know what, I am hacking at this thing and it is not working. I'm going to do something else. Maybe I should actually live out all this stuff I believe and hear about. See, this pastor philosopher is talking to religious people like us. People who, who, we reject the beliefs of under the sun. We don't purposely try to ignore God. But we are kind of, we tend to be religious and we do think we can manipulate God with our behavior. We don't call it that, but we act like we can. And so functionally, we're living as fools instead of living in the wisdom God has given us by grace. We live, don't we, as if it really is up to us to prove our worth. That we do have to perform so people will like us, so that God Himself will like us. We live as if our success depends upon our own strength. That's not wisdom. That's foolishness. Because wisdom is about living in the reality of grace. If God has changed you by grace, if His approval has put something substantial in your heart, you have the joy and the peace that everybody wants. You have success. See, here's the real question for you church folk. For we church folk, I should say. Do we really believe that God wants us to be joyful and successful? That's what this whole section of Ecclesiastes is about. He's trying to convince God's people that God wants us to be joyful and happy. That's why He gives us His approval. That's why twice in chapter 9, it's a, it's a rigid translation, but you can't argue with it. Twice in chapter 9, he says, look, man, go have a beer and be happy. Twice. He says it. Why? Because God approves you. Go enjoy life. He wants you to be happy, to be successful, to be a substantial person who can handle the junk of life. Is that what you think Christianity is about? Because that's what Ecclesiastes thinks it's about. God is gracious to us because He approves us because Jesus Christ has earned that approval with His life and His death. That's the Gospel. And that Gospel is available to you because Jesus Christ did exactly what verses 4-7 through seven commend to us and critique. Jesus Christ was the object of anger for rulers. And He didn't abandon His mission. But with peace and in calmness, He fulfilled His Father's will all the way to the cross. He was the most worthy of all people. He should have been the one honored on a horse and the slave walking the ground. Instead, it's reversed like Ecclesiastes tells us. And Instead of getting His crown of gold and a robe of purple, Jesus Christ was given a crown of thorns. And on His back, instead of purple, expensive cloth, was lashes and blood so He could forgive His people and empower them to live in wisdom. That's Christianity. That's the Gospel. Is it in you? Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, Lord, we do come before You confessing that we are so often fools. That we who know You that we who know the facts about You, we so often live outside of this time and place. And the rest of the week, Lord, we live as if those things are not true. And that if it is, it, everything is up to us, our success, our happiness, our approval, our life is up to us. And so we exhaust ourselves performing. 
And then we get mad at you because we don't think you're coming through for us. Lord, would you forgive us for being such fools? Would you help us once again to cast all of our cares on you? Would you help us once again, Lord, to grab on to the gospel, to believe that Jesus Christ has lived the life you demand of us, and that he has died the death that you demand for our sins, and that in his resurrection we are given life, adopted into your family, and that you approve us and want us to have joy. Lord, would you help us to believe that? Because we don't. Lord, would you do that for those of us who do know you but just struggle to live in that reality? And would you do it for those here today who don't know you? Would you call them from death to life? Lord, would you do your work of salvation? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.